And that's why we're seeing this across the board. Like the, the, it's always like the gut fill in the blank connection, right? The gut brain connection, the gut environment connection, gut the hormone. gut hormone connection. Like everything is connected gut to the skin. gut. That's why it's like mm-hmm. the nexus of all health is the gut. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number two hundred and forty. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Doctor Yami board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, 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 veggie lovers. Welcome to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. You are going to love this episode. The gut health episodes tend to be some of the most popular episodes on Veggie Doctor Radio, and this one is a slam dunk. James and Dahlia just really nailed it. They did a fantastic job, and they answered some questions and gave some information that I didn't even know. So I learned a lot in this episode. These two dietitians, they're just very knowledgeable, they're experienced, and they care. They are working so hard to help so many people, help people integrate more plants into their diets, but also to help people heal from the suffering of digestive issues. Okay, so before I tell you more about James and Dahlia, I do want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you do have concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, growth, GI system, any health issue, you really should be consulting a health professional. In this podcast episode, they share how you can work with them and their team if you're interested in reaching out to a dietitian who is a nutrition professional, fully credentialed. They have the ability to help with these dietary changes, especially if you're struggling and everybody on their team is plant-based. So if that's how you roll and that's how you want to roll and you need help, definitely seek their help. So let me tell you about these two amazing people. Dahlia Marin, RNLD, CGN, and James Marin, RDEN, are the co-founders of the integrative dietetics practice Married to Health and the first 100% plant-based SIBO IBS nutrition program. As gut health dietitians, Dahlia and James' goal is to spread knowledge about the importance of incorporating plant foods to support a healthy gut microbiome and help those with gut issues get back to a thriving gut microbiome. So like I said, these two have been hard at work for a while. They've been plant-based for over a decade and they are creating so many amazing resources and assets. We talked in this episode about their new ebook, The Good Gut 
A through Z ebook and why they wrote it, what's in it, how it can be helpful. So definitely check that out. We talk about SIBO and other microbial overgrowth syndromes, what they are, what the typical symptoms are, what the difference is between SIBO and IBS. That can be a little bit tricky. How you diagnose and treat SIBO, how you integrate a plant-based approach with SIBO. Because probably most people have heard if you have SIBO, you shouldn't eat a lot of plants because fiber, carbohydrates, not good for your gut whenever you have microbial overgrowth. So we talk about that. We also talk about prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics. And they answer the question, should we all just be taking probiotics? We also talk about the least talked about causes of GI disorders. This was very interesting. We got a whole nother perspective, talked about a whole nother dimension that can be affecting your gut health. So you definitely want to be paying attention to that. And then we touch on anti-nutrients. You've probably heard of them, lectins, phytates, all of those things. Are they killing us? Are they horrible for us? What should we do with these anti-nutrients? And of course, we hear what they wish more people knew, and we hear about their amazing morning routine. So this was a fantastic episode. Like I said, information-packed. They were just laying down the wisdom and the knowledge, question after question after question. So like I said, you're definitely going to want to listen to this. If you struggle with your gut or anybody in your family does, Take notes, listen to it again, share it with friends and family so that they can hear this information because it is so, 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 so important. Veggie Lover, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for coming back week after week after week. Thank you for your support. I am so grateful for you. And I have so much appreciation for being the host of this podcast and being able to share all this wisdom from these guests with you. So thank you, welcome new listeners. And now let's welcome Dahlia and James Marin. James and Dahlia Marin, welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank, thank you, for having us thanks back. for having us back again. We loved being here last time. <laughs> Yay, okay, well, there's lots to talk about since the last time we met, y'all have been very busy creating new things. But let's start with your book, The Good Gut A through Z book. Tell me about that. Why did you write it? Yeah, great question. I mean, we we had a lot and we get these questions a lot, whether it's through social media or through our practice of just like, well, what, what do I eat? What do you guys eat on a plant-based diet? Or how do I get more plants? And, you know, I think inspiration actually came to me when we were doing a grocery store tour once. We used to have a partnership with a local health food store here, and I was touring people around and talking about the benefits of these different foods. And this one guy said, all that's great, but what happens is I don't know what to do with this stuff. I take it home, it goes in my fridge, and it dies there. So... <sighs> I wanted to give people these practical tips so that wouldn't happen. And that way their fruit joy, their vegetable joy would not become a fiber cemetery. And they knew what, where, why, how, all the details about all these different types of plants A to Z. So we not only provided four, three to five examples of different plant foods from A to Z, but we talked about where it originated, why it's good for the gut, different ways to cook it, different ways to eat it. So we really, really wanted to make sure 
that that was not everyone's story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. No, fiber cemetery sounds awful. We don't want any fiber cemeteries. Uh-huh. It makes me think of the memes that people put on that, like, it'll say, I was a different person when I bought the arugula one week ago. <laughs> You know, like people are like, have good intentions and buy all this stuff. And then it just sits there in their fridge. It rots while they order pizza takeout, yes. right? Or people who post those memes of like, my lettuce dying, watching me put in a frozen yeah. pizza again. And so it's like, we don't want that. We want, we want people to have both. Yeah. yeah. And there are so many, I feel like it's one of those things that, you grow up and you're just familiar with what you're familiar with. And unless somebody teaches you or you're deliberate about figuring it out, there's so many plant foods out there. So it's really nice to have a primer where you can kind of be like, okay, I'm interested in learning about how to prepare and cook an artichoke, but I'm a little intimidated. So let me start with this and see how I can integrate into my diet. So I think it's a fabulous idea that y'all had. Thank you. you. And we wanted to make it accessible, too. So we posted a lot of it on our Instagram. It's there completely free and accessible. And for those who want the complete guide A to Z without having to scroll and sift through everything else, they can find it on their website if they want it just all in one place. Perfect. Now, you know, we talk about wanting to eat more plants and at least for a lot of people developing that strong foundation for a healthy lifestyle and maintenance of health. But unfortunately, some people are already having gut issues and that's why they seek out your help. So let's talk about SIBO. What is SIBO? How common is it? And what are the typical symptoms? SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And in the last few years, they've actually teased that out a little bit further. So you can have, one can have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, intestinal methanogenic overgrowth, which is a different type of gas made by a different type of gut bug that's not technically a bacteria. One can have fungal overgrowth. So this is basically when there's overgrowth, overabundance of these gut bugs and for the most part, they're overgrowing in the wrong place. So it's not necessarily that they're all bad bugs or they're pathogenic types of microbes. They're just often wrong place, wrong time. So most of the time, we are going to have a majority of our 100 trillion microbes that are found in our gut microbiome, our gut bugs, in our large intestine, our colon, the very last part of our digestive tract. So these in different conditions, whether there is dysmotility or improperly moving intestines and there's some stagnation and they'll kind of creep up, or that can happen in times where there's just too much of any type of gut bug. Maybe somebody got food poisoning or for whatever reason, they had more growth of a different type of gut bug. And what these do are they'll open up the little door because we all have these little doors that compartmentalize our gastrointestinal tract. And they'll open up that little door and be like, hey, small intestine, I see a bunch of undigested, unabsorbed food. I love fiber as a colon gut bug. Let me start doing my right thing, which is eating and fermenting fiber in the wrong place. So oftentimes with SIBO, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, IMO, CIFO, any of those, whatever's overgrowing, people will have very uncomfortable symptoms. And most of the time they get put in this big box of IBS. They'll say, you have irritable bowel syndrome. 
thankfully, in the last 20 years especially, there's been immense research on the fact that anywhere from 14 to 70% in most recent studies, 14 to 70% of irritable bowel syndrome is actually SIBO or IMO or CIFO. So instead of just saying, well, I don't know, your, your bowels are irritable, <laughs> now we're able to say, Perhaps it's because you have bacterial overgrowth or some type of microbial overgrowth in your small intestine. And even when we find that out with somebody, we still from that point want to figure out why did this happen? What's going on in the way that your intestines are moving and flowing? What's going on where there's just imbalance of the inflammatory versus the anti-inflammatory gut bugs that you have living inside of you? And then, and then to simplify that really quickly, like we, we love to give analogies. We give one of two analogies, either city analogy or ecosystem analogy. And I kind of feel like going with the ecosystem analogy because one thing we, we are kind of, we kind of preach and educate and teach our patients about is really understanding like the most important ecosystem lives right inside of you. Like we go as far to say your inner ecosystem is the nexus of all health on the planet. Like if we take care of our inner ecosystem, the ripple effects will be profound, the likes of which we can't even fathom. So, you know, in that ecosystem, it's just like when we take, let's say a rat from a forest and move it to an island and it like decimates an island. Island. We hear about this all the time where we take hogs from Africa, we introduce them somewhere into Texas, and now there's a hog problem. And so it's not that the, the actual animal is a bad, oh, it's a bad animal. It's just, again, it's, it's the right animal in the wrong place, right? So our inner ecosystem resembles that in many, many ways where we need all these different microbes. And even we haven't even gotten into the virome and all the viruses, but there's so much going on. And a lot of the times with this dysbiosis and with this kind of imbalance of our ecosystem, things just go awry and get wacky. And then you start having all these different symptoms. So it's much like the outer ecosystems we're seeing. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So basically you're saying is people that have this, they can be bloated, have trouble with their digestion, maybe even have abdominal pain from all the bloating and the gas and things just don't seem right to them. But what you're also saying is that there's a lot of people that have this, that they're just told, well, you just have IBS. A lot of them might have this overgrowth problem. But how common is it in general? I mean, I feel like digestive problems are so common and people are talking all the time about their digestion not working right. So how common is either uh, SIBO or other overgrowth problems or IBS in our population in general? Yeah. So the NIH estimates that 60 to 70 million people in the U.S. are struggling with irritable bowel syndrome or some type of digestive disorder. So 10 to 15 percent of Americans, which is one in seven people, has have been diagnosed with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. So they are walking around with those symptoms that you just said, excess um, gas, which is anywhere passing flatulence, anywhere from 10 to 15 it's normal from, sorry, 15 to 20 times a day, but more than that. If you have excess of 15 to 20 times a day of passing flatulence, they're bloated, they might be excessively belching, they have alternating constipation, diarrhea, or just diarrhea or constipation. They have abdominal discomfort, change in defecation. Um, maybe they're passing mucus or blood in their stool. And those are just some of the symptoms that they may experience. Maybe they're having gas that has a really strong smell like sulfur or rotten eggs a lot of the time. 
times. These can all tell them, hey, something's off with your gut. You might be one of those 10 to 15% of Americans, those one in seven who are suffering from irritable bowel syndrome. And of that, like I mentioned, 14 to 70% of those 10 to 15% of Americans do have SIBO, according to studies. So it's on the rise, unfortunately. And I think that that's so multifactorial. There are so many root causes for SIBO, but I think especially in today's day and age, those of us who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, now we're the generation who was pretty much raised on highly processed foods. And we know the first thousand days of life, I'm sure you as a pediatrician are really passionate about first thousand days of life as well, because we know studies show it's extremely an extremely impactful time to the development of the brain, the immune system, and the gut microbiome. So those first thousand days of life include mom's pregnancy. And now we're seeing a generation of more moms pregnant who have IBS, and they're more likely to pass on their microbiome to their baby. In the first two years, we do know also that the World Health Organization, American Academy of Pediatrics, other organizations are recommending zero added and refined sugars before the age of two. And we're not really seeing that being carried out. So we're seeing in the first thousand days of life, people's microbiomes were offset. Maybe they took a lot of antibiotics in that time as well. Um, Perhaps they had stressful childhoods or stressful developmental years. And whether that is in the first thousand days or even several years after that, we're seeing that more and more, unfortunately, this is becoming more prevalent. And we're seeing more younger adults now suffering with irritable bowel syndrome and other GI disorders, inflammatory bowel disease, other things as well. So it is one in seven right now, but I think that that's going to become much more prevalent, unfortunately. And even, you know, with data, I mean, it lags somewhat. So we would even say it's even more than that now. It's just going to take time for that data to kind of catch up. And and it makes sense. And even anecdotally, when you, when you assess, whether it's in your patient population or you're out with friends or you're at a family gathering, it's very common. We're hearing more and more of our family members and even in our friend circle, like, oh, I have, I have gut problems or they've been talking with us a little bit and we, we tell them what we do or we're getting into the weeds of it. They're like, oh, maybe I'm constipated. And we've come to find out like constipation can become normal for some people. And it's like, oh yeah, I go like every other day. I have a bowel movement every other day. Isn't that's my normal. And it's like, or well, once a week. <laughs> uh, that's, that's not optimal. Right. Mm-hmm. So that is, sh- is showing you're having some issues there. So come to find out there, there's a, a good majority, a good population of people that don't even realize they're having symptoms because it's their normal. So yeah, we think these numbers are a lot higher. Yeah, I can identify with that because before I adopted a plant-based diet, I suffered from constipation for 30 years and I really didn't, I thought it was normal too. And also my chronic abdominal pain was just normal. So it feels really great not to have abdominal pain and constipation now and have, you know, be free of those symptoms for so many years, for over a decade. So how is this even diagnosed? Do people that potentially have these symptoms, can it be diagnosed just from the history and some of the symptoms or do they need to have special lab testing in order to diagnose it? 
So with irritable bowel syndrome, there's criteria that one can fall in to be diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. So there's this Rome criteria that basically looks at change in abdominal pain, change in defecation, change in bloating and gas. And so those would qualify somebody for an IBS diagnosis. If they're having them more than a few times a month for several months, they would be diagnosed with IBS just based on what they report. With SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or IMO or even fungal overgrowth, um, but more so SIBO and IMO, we can actually test for that. So gold standard to test for them would be to take a small amount of what's called small bowel aspirate. So a little bit of fluid from the small intestine that a gastroenterologist would extract while they're performing an endoscopy, a study that puts a camera down their entire upper GI tract to kind of take a look at it. So gold standard is that because they're going to sample this fluid, send it off to the lab, and they're going to then say, yes, this person had excess amount of hydrogen or excess amount of methane gas in their fluid that you sent to us to biopsy or to um to test, yes. And then if that's not accessible, because not everybody's going to have an endoscopy or they're invasive and you know not everybody needs that full-on procedure. So now it's become more widely accessible where patients can even order this for themselves. I don't recommend that you do if you don't have the support to really review it and go through it. But now practitioners can order a breath test where a patient can either do it in the office or they can do it in the comfort of their own home. And they are basically drinking a fermentable substrate. So they're drinking a fermentable carbohydrate. It's either glucose or it could be lactulose, which is glucose plus lactose. They're drinking this. And then every 20 minutes, they're blowing into these little bags. And they send off these little bags of their breath to a lab. The lab analyzes them. And the lab can then say, this is exactly how much hydrogen, methane, hydrogen sulfide gas you had. And this qualifies for SIBO or IMO or not. Um, and with fungal overgrowth, it can get a little trickier. Very few will test for this. Also, same way of getting small bowel aspirate and saying, yes, you did have excess amount of fungus in your small intestine through your fluid. But I feel like in the next several years, I think we're going to get better at really detecting this fungal overgrowth because we're starting, unfortunately, to see it more and more, more commonly with people who live with things like mold illness, mycotoxin illness, or just have taken a lot of antibiotics in their life. And now these regular fungi and yeast who are living in their gut amongst the bacteria kind of said, hey, bacteria is gone. Let me take over. Um, so I think that that's going to start to become more accessible, but we're not there quite yet. Wow. That's super fascinating. I actually didn't know about the breath test for diagnosing that. So thanks for sharing that with us. Okay. So it sounds like whenever you have this overgrowth, it's a problem and it's creating an imbalance. So whenever you're putting things like fiber and carbohydrates in the intestines or eating them, so they're getting into the small intestine, you're having problems. So one would assume that the treatment is to adopt a carnivore diet, right? <laughs> so that's what I'm hearing over and over again. So how, you how do you- just eat a big raw liver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so given that, the problem, how do you treat SIBO with a plant-based approach? Is it even possible? Well, let me, yeah, let me start out first by saying, yes, you're absolutely correct where there is this kind of uh, misalignment and almost this like easier path, right? You think like, oh, well, it must be this path. 
path. I have these symptoms. Therefore, the path is a low carbohydrate, low fiber diet, because I feel better if I just eat chicken breast and steak and lots of butter. And, you know, and, and the list goes on and on with the more carnivore based diet, right? It's like, oh, well, I'm not putting in those fermentable carbohydrates. My symptoms are gone. I'm cured. And somehow we've equated uh, suppressing symptoms equaling a cure. And that is just not the case because a great analogy we give for this is it's like you're, you're racking up immense amount of debt, right? It's like you're charging your credit card like crazy. You're opening more and more credit cards. You're racking up debt. And then someone goes, well, I have the solution for you. And you go, what? Well, take all those letters and the phone calls, change your number and just rip up all the letters. And there you go. Your symptoms are gone, right? You're not getting those letters in the mail. You're not getting the phone calls. It's all great. Debt free. Until you go and buy a, a new car or go try to take out a mortgage and they go, your credit is horrible. So it's one thing to get rid of the notifications, which are symptoms, symptoms are, is, is pretty much your body saying, help me. There's and a problem. There's a problem. And you're just like turning it off, right? You're turning off the notifications. That doesn't solve anything. And that's essentially what the carnivore diet does. It's turning off the notifications without actually exploring the root causes and understanding the deep roots of why this even started in the beginning. It's actually a plant-based diet and plants that will help you to understand and assess and get to those roots and really be a sustainable long-term solution. It is saying, okay, I have all this debt. Here's a plan. Here's a budget. Let's get actually get rid of this debt and, and truly have it be gone and get you at a better financial status, essentially. Mm-hmm. In this case, even better, a health status, right? A better health status. And that's why for some people, they say, oh, yeah, man, I tried to go vegan to cure my gut issues. And oh, I just felt so much worse. Well, if you don't have the money to pay off that debt, you can't just come in here and try to expect to wipe it out by making this snap of your fingers. So low and slow is definitely the name of the game when it comes to this. So while elimination diets, even ones that are extremely well studied, something like the low FODMAP diet, right, where that stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, dissect saccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. For those of you who don't care what that means, it's basically a low fermentable carbohydrate diet. So well studied, even that is not recommended for longer than six to eight weeks to be in the elimination phase. So for those who say, okay, yeah, let me just avoid everything. Let me avoid FODMAPs. Let me avoid fiber. Let me avoid these cruciferous vegetables because they make my gas smell like rotten eggs. Let me just avoid, 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 avoid. You're doing the same thing. You're just silencing those notifications. So what we say is, well, if we need to avoid temporarily, let's do that. And then let's introduce little by little low and slow. So that way you can start unearthing issues and you can start assessing what actually bothers you and what does not. What you tolerate, how much you tolerate of it, why you don't tolerate it past a certain threshold. Because a robust, really well-balanced, really nicely moving gut microbiome and gastrointestinal tract they will process really anything, right? We all hope to say, oh yeah, I have a gut of steel and I could eat anything I want. I'm not that person. I've, you know, had been diagnosed with IBS in the past and I've had terrible gut issues. So even to this day, I'm still working back low and slow. Um, But we have seen that the sustainable way to heal your gut with true healing, not this facade of lack of symptoms, is to try low and slow to reintroduce things. And if there is an instance of something like SIBO, you do need to address it. 
Because as much as we want to say, oh, I'll just cure myself with food, in rare cases, if it's really just chalked up to someone being constipated and that backup of stool was what was opening up that little door and allowing bacteria in their small intestine, sometimes that will resolve on its own with food. If somebody has a raging case of SIBO and their numbers of gas are off the chart, that's really not going to be possible without intervention. And that's where then they'll go to their care team, they'll go to their gastroenterologist or other members of their care team, and maybe they're prescribed an antibiotic that's not necessarily broad spectrum or concentrated to the small intestine to eradicate that overgrowth. Sometimes it's herbal antimicrobials, or it could be other things to really say, okay, let's get a level playing field. And then now that we have this level, let's try to re-nourish these gut bugs so that way they grow back in balance. And if there's not only an issue with the balance of them, but a motility issue, oftentimes we'll say, hey, let's make sure you're physically moving your body. So you're physically moving your intestines. Maybe you're pelvic floor muscles that surround your digestive organs and your bladder and your reproductive organs, maybe they have overcompensated or undercompensated because you've been bloated and gassy and constipated for years. And now maybe those muscles have gotten so used to clenching in and holding in your gas, they have a hard time relaxing. So maybe you need some pelvic floor therapy with a physical therapist. Maybe you need some other support or intervention. Maybe you have dysbiosis because of stress. So let's get you hooked in with a, a therapist or a psychiatrist or a counselor. So really getting yourself out of it is understanding first why you got there. <laughs> Just like if you got in debt, you really want to understand, ooh, where did my spending go off the rails? Understand the roots of it. Understand the symptoms that you're currently having. Address them and then rebuild from there. And then real quickly, two things. I mean, yeah, the the summary, you know, it is a one-two punch. Like you don't want to just go in and be like, okay, I need antibiotics. I'm just going to take antibiotics. Kill for are, every else. <laughs> there are those patients as well that have, they know they have SIBO and they know they feel better after a round of antibiotics or even herbal antimicrobials. And they feel better for three months and then they keep taking them pretty much every like three to six months. And they're just on this antibiotic cycle. And eventually the wheels start, start falling off horribly when you're on, as you know, too many antibiotics and antimicrobials. So really the one-two punch is if you're going to do that, make sure you have a care team that is well-rounded, like with a dietitian, and know how to bring back those foods in, know how to eat those plants, know how to eat the correct plants in the correct order to nourish and reestablish that microbiome. At the same time, you are taking those those antimicrobials or antibiotics because without that, you're missing that one-two punch, that amazing combination. Also to add, just to, because I know Dahlia doesn't doesn't showcase herself enough. She has had IBS and with a plant-based diet really, really, I mean, amazingly improved it to the point where that's why she is so passionate about this. That's why she specializes in this area. And she is, and with her protocol, she is making it easier for patients to kind of understand this as well, because it was quite, I mean, I remember when I first met Dahlia, it was like, literally, she was bloated after every meal. She would sometimes be hunched over just in pain with her stomach. Like everything she ate made her, made her stomach feel horrible. And I think, especially when we first met, it's like those embarrassing bathroom visits that she would kind of hide. And, you know, it's, it's, it can be not only from a just 
physical standpoint, but even a mental and emotional, like the relationships and going out and connecting in that communal setting like we humans do, it can add a whole nother layer of stress when you're having these consistent gut issues. So to see that essentially wiped out um, is, is amazing. And now it's like, you know, obviously we, we don't really eat added sugar or drink alcohol. Those are massive, massive triggers. Um, so it's like, we know, we know how to navigate of like, oh, that, those are, that's a landmine if we go that way. So let's not even walk on that field. Right. So it's understanding these landmines for sure. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it can just impede so much of joy in life and your ability to appreciate you know, your health and your well-being whenever you're in pain and discomfort. <clears throat> so I think um, what's important for people to know, just like what you were saying is, yeah, sometimes we do need to have that medical intervention, but don't take that alone. You have to maybe wipe stuff out, like slash and burn, but then build upon that foundation in order to solve your problem. Because otherwise you're just gonna be stuck in this recurrent cycle that actually could get just worse over time and lead to more problems. So you do have to be ready with how you're going to rebuild that flora, strengthen that flora. Now, naturally what comes up, because it sounds like what you're saying requires time and patience, right? So people have to know that you're, they're going to be in this for the long haul. They're not going to be better in one week. It's going to take time, sometimes maybe frustration, trial and error, going back down on the amounts after they've gone up, you know, just to know, okay, that was too much. Maybe I need to go back down a little bit. So then, you know, we're Americans and we want magic pills and quick fixes. So naturally the question is, can't I just fix this all by taking probiotics? So tell us about that. Should we all be taking probiotics? Is there a place for probiotics when it comes to some of these conditions? And if not, then what is the best way to foster a healthy gut microbiome? Can I start? And then I know I know Dahlia has a lot to say. I'll kind of jump in quickly because I want to... I want everyone to realize the food you are eating has probiotics and there are literally probiotics inside of you. This really, really goes back. And I can't say this enough about your inner ecosystem. Quick analogy on this is like, it's like you have a garden within you, right? And it's more than that. It's a rainforest within you. And and understanding the dynamic of probiotics is understanding probiotics as the seeds and your gut as the soil. It doesn't matter how many seeds you have. I mean, great. You can have the best heirloom, organic, amazing seeds. But if you don't have the healthy soil to plant them in, it doesn't really matter. So again, eating and your lifestyle and your gut health is that soil. It helps you to rebuild that inner ecosystem and that soil. So when you do add seeds, you can even add seeds from breathing and being in nature you can add seeds from eating a kale salad or fresh fruit from the farmer's market. But again, if you are if you don't have that soil, those seeds aren't going to grow and flourish. Now, there's more to that you can add of mm -hmm. even if someone already has SIBO and IBS or these gut issues, 
probiotics can actually make things worse, um, especially a probiotic supplement. So I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. So, you know, if you are already having bacterial overgrowth, then these probiotics, which literally mean adding bacteria or giving life, adding more bacteria, these can make things worse. So the American College of Gastroenterology actually does not recommend the use of probiotics for those who do have SIBO or any type of microbial overgrowth. However, that's not always the case. So usually I will recommend balance things out first, really start to support your gut and start with whole food probiotics. So I am all about eating probiotics. Last year, there were several really amazing studies that came out on probiotics as well. There's a great study that came out of Stanford that showed that those who consumed four to six servings of probiotics per day had a wider diversity of microbes in their gut and um, decreased inflammation or stronger immunity. So yes, eating probiotic foods can garner that. A lot of times probiotic foods, let's say tempeh or miso soup, kombucha, or maybe it's some type of dairy-free kefir, or perhaps it's sauerkraut or kimchi. Those can contain both the seed, the probiotic, and some food. Because sometimes when you plant things in your soil, you still need to add other nutrients on top of it to nurture those seeds. So prebiotics are the food for the probiotics. And that comes in fiber, that comes in different sources. So I always say, start with food forms of probiotics. If somebody's maybe not tolerating cabbage yet and they can't eat sauerkraut and kimchi, that's fine. Don't go there. Eat dairy-free yogurt or eat a a nice dairy-free cheese that's not made with a ton of coconut oil and saturated fat that has added probiotics to it. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. 
maybe try seeing how you do with a nice low sugar kombucha or sip on some miso soup that you didn't boil to death that kept those probiotics alive. So everyone can access those probiotic foods and everybody can be eating those probiotic foods as well. Um, Should everybody be taking a probiotic capsule? I'm going to say no, because we don't even know yet what type of bacteria and other microbes are living in everybody's gut. So to say, here's a, you know, one size fits all probiotic capsule, my microbiome can differ extremely from yours. So one that's appropriate for you and makes you feel amazing might make me feel terrible and that I have brain fog and fatigue. So there's no one size fits all because there is no one microbiome. All of our microbiomes are unique, just like our fingerprints. We can start to mirror the microbiome of those we cohabitate with. So my microbiome might look a little bit more similarly to James's and vice versa now that we've been cohabitating for such a long time. Um, but we, neither of us might need a probiotic. So I'm never a definite no for things. There are cases in which I'll recommend certain strains of bacteria, someone who has recurrent urinary tract infections perhaps, or bacterial vaginosis, or for some of my patients who have recurrent yeast, maybe I'll recommend things like Saccharomyces boulardii, which is a healthy strain of yeast. But that's not going to be a one-size-fits-all just because one person felt better with it doesn't mean everyone will. What I do recommend for everybody is prebiotics. So we do recommend, again, if you're not tolerating all fiber, figure out why, low and slow, start reintroducing it, and start to really see, are there any holes, any gaps that I can fill in my gut that are going to help me tolerate more prebiotic fiber and more probiotics? And, you know, we even had the opportunity to partner with Complement. And Complement is a cool company. They make a multivitamin for vegans. And so um, we got to kind of put in some of these cool things. And we said, we didn't want to make a probiotic. We wanted to add prebiotics and just whole food vitamins and nutrients. So we got to put together a cool blend that people can drink or add to. I like to put it in my dairy-free yogurt and other places, but saying rather than trying to just add more, why don't we try to nurture who's already there and then naturally kind of foster and attract more of that healthy type of gut bug in the healthy community that's already existing. Instead of saying, hey, you got a shady community, let's try to put in these shiny new bacteria and expect them to thrive. Not always the case. That's great information. Okay, so we shouldn't just across the blanket or across the board, just everybody get a a prebiotic, no, a probiotic, sorry, get my pre's pro and post confused here probiotic (laughs) because we did get into that habit probably what maybe a decade ago where everybody was taking a probiotic and it was just like the cool thing to do right so it's no longer the cool thing to do there might be a place for it but it needs to be individualized now we all should be taking or consuming at least prebiotics which is all the different types of fiber that feed those healthy gut bacteria and gut bugs. But what are postbiotics? Where do they come from? Yeah. And again, I'm inspired by the garden analogy and any gardeners listening will get this right because the prebiotics are the mulch and the compost. You're you're putting all these fibers kind of decompose back into the soil. That's the prebiotics. 
they then help and give rise to the seeds, the probiotics. And then what happens when those continue to work together in your garden? Let's say the seed is an apple tree or a fig tree or a kale plant. And then you start to bear fruit. And so those fruits and the vegetables are essentially probiotics in the microbial world, right? So these probiotics aren't actually fruits or vegetables, but in, in the microbial world, they're short-chain fatty acids. Postbiotics. The po postbiotics, yeah. right? In the right, sorry. The fruit are the postbiotics. The fruit are the postbiotics. So, the in the microbial world, though, these fruits or postbiotics are short chain fatty acids, proteins, various other fatty acids. I mean, it, vitamins, they're vitamins, even B twelve. I mean, the list goes on and on, and they're all these little gifts your microbes are giving us, and it's it's pretty amazing. And that's why now in, in the macro analogy the beautiful thing is it can go full circle, right? Because now these like postbiotics in the plant world are figs and kale and all these different fruits, papaya and nectarines. And the beauty of that is you get to eat those and those are prebiotics and the cycle goes back on and on and on. And it's a beautiful thing, but any, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah. And, and in the human body, that's what it's doing too. It's creating this whole feedback loop where if we're doing the right thing and feeding our good gut bugs, then it's creating good positive feedback loops to help us feel better and have more energy and protect us from heart disease. But it can also work in the opposite way in that it can be creating feedback that's not healthy for us, leading to more anxiety, depression, or even increasing our risk of heart disease. So I think it's important to know that it is a cycle and it's a chain. And it, all the you know literature coming out now that's so fascinating. I even saw an article, I don't know if, if y'all saw this article this week about how your gut microbiome may influence how much motivation you have to exercise, mm -hmm. to exercise. Definitely. So mm -hmm. we know that it influences our cravings for sure. So it, yeah. they, cause they want to keep eating. So it's in their best interest mm -hmm. to keep feeding them Stay what alive. they want to keep eating. So sometimes mm -hmm. we have to understand that these cravings are coming from a place where it may not be supporting our health because it is fostering those colonies that are not necessarily as health promoting for us. So it's super fascinating, this whole chain, how it's all connected to these little organisms that we can't even see. Mm -hmm. Right. It's and, amazing. And they're so intelligent because even these more inflammatory microbes, when we do feed them, it's almost, I always say they're almost like a little fire that they cause, right? This inflammation that they generate. And a little bit of fire is fine, right? We can cook on it. We can stay warm by it. But when we're feeding too much, when we're putting too much gas on that fire, that will grow and grow and grow and start damaging things. So mm -hmm. even as we're feeding them more, they almost oust themselves because then we're like, oh, my stomach hurts. I'm constipated. I'm having rectal bleeding or I'm seeing mucus in my stool. I'm seeing the signs of these inflammatory microbes. I'm seeing that my stool is wiping really messy, more like peanut butter. Something's off. So they also kind of present themselves in a not so positive way to say, hey, something's up. Please do something about it. 
please make some changes. And that's why we're seeing this across the board. Like the, the, it's always like the gut fill in the blank connection, right? The gut brain connection, the gut environment connection, gut the hormone. gut hormone connection. Like everything is connected gut to the skin. gut. That's why it's like mm-hmm. the nexus of all health is the gut. I would even go as far as the gut politic connection, the gut, I mean, economy connection. If we focus on the gut, everything else kind of falls into place um, because microbes are ubiquitous. And it's not, we, we, focus heavily on the gut microbiome, but we have a lung microbiome, we have a mouth microbiome, we have a skin microbiome. They're all connected and the list goes on and on. And so, like you said, another way to put this is literally microbes are the medium in which everything is connected from the bird flying outside to your spouse or whoever you cohabitate with to your pet dog in the house we're all connected by this medium of microbes Mm. that are floating in the air, that are on surfaces, that we breathe and taste and eat every single day. And it's like, it's really just embracing this and understanding this and, and tapping into the potential of this, which is really exciting. And, and everything we've learned in the last like 30 years is really just scratching the surface on all of this, which is really crazy to think. So we get we get really excited just thinking about where nutrition and medical nutrition therapy will go and even medicine. I mean, just it's amazing. Y'all are genuine nutrition nerds. Which is a good thing. That means that you're in the right profession. All right. So let me throw (laughs) one at you because lately I've been obsessed with and very passionate about time-restricted eating or intermittent Mm -hmm. fasting. What information Mm -hmm. do y'all have on using this modality or adding it on as another, you know, something in your toolkit when it comes to gut health? Yeah, Dolly is big on talking about the migrating motor complex. I mean, I'll kind of, I mean, yeah, taking it from, from a gut standpoint, I mean, there's power in not eating, right? Like we, we never, I think even 15 years ago, we never really thought of that or even especially further back, we're like, well, no, you have to eat. It's all about nutrition, 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 but there's power in not eating as well. It's giving your your body time and that migrating motor complex, which is essentially that rest and digest phase of your body to kind of do its thing. And so this notion of constantly grazing, whether it's little a snack here, a little snack there every 30 minutes or every hour is, is usually not beneficial for most, if not all people. And so really taking time to not eat and be fasted. And that is essentially, so the umbrella of intermittent fasting and then under that umbrella is time restricted feeding, which Dahlia and I both follow of making sure we're at least 12 hours fasted, if not more. I think we average like 16 hours maybe fasted. I'd say 14. Or 14 to 16, depending on the day. And that's including sleep. So don't worry. It's not like you're like fasting all day. You're like, I can't eat. No, it's it's when you're sleeping. um, But you think of the average American who's going to bed at midnight. And if you're having that midnight snack and then you're getting up at 6 a.m. to go to work and you're having that bagel and cream cheese, you're not, you're barely fasting for like six hours, right? That's that's just not enough time. So yeah, definitely big fans of time-restricted feeding, huge, huge gut health benefits. And it all centers around that migrating motor mm-hmm. complex for the most part. Because it's really overnight when our gut is really trying to clean things up. So they say, you know, your gut, your liver, your detox organs are going to do their best work when we're not putting in more. So when you're not being exposed to more food, more pollutants, more other things, your liver, your gut, which work very synergistically, they can kind of take some time and be like, hey, let's 
let's review, let's have a therapy session and really process out what we just dealt with all day long, try to get rid of what's not for us and keep what is. So that's that time where your gut is catching up and sifting through all these things and saying, ooh, this is a keep. It's kind of like KonMari, right? Like, ooh, this brings me joy. Let me keep this. And ooh, this doesn't. So let me get rid of it. Um, But if we're not giving that due time, one, we're less likely to be completely detoxing through our bowels, which that's our main highway of detoxing things like hormones and xenobiotics and environmental chemicals and things that are fat soluble, excess fats, yeah, excess cholesterol, excess triglycerides. So, so many things are eradicated through our stool. It needs time to process that and say, hey, what are we keeping? What are we not keeping? Um, So if you, again, are not giving it that due time, it's like, oh, okay, I had a couple hours to get what I needed to do done. And now I have to start doing it all over again. I didn't finish that last job, but let me move on to the next. So very scattered. Um, And then, yeah, just like James was saying, with that migrating motor complex, that MMC, which is this clean sweep that takes place from basically the top of your esophagus to the bottom of your small intestine. Talk about preventing SIBO. You need this sweep so that way if any excess microbes are trying to grow your sweep is gonna be like no get out of here move down to where you belong move back down to the colon if you are constantly eating or if you don't give due time overnight even that can be altered we know that sleep also is so 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 important so if you aren't practicing time-restricted feeding hopefully you are practicing sleeping with your circadian rhythm because that also can influence that migrating motor complex that balance in your gut gut bugs but both really are so important and that's why most of us wake up and in the morning we're like Ooh, mm-hmm. time to go <laughs> i i know that overnight my body was at work forming some stool either before you eat breakfast or after most people say "Ooh, i get that urge i have something called that gastrocolic reflex where those nerves in my colon understood that there is expansion there and it's now time to empty out before new things are coming in and being processed. So if we're really conscious about when we're eating, that can happen very efficiently as well. Yeah. Like, I mean, what's the first thing you do when you wake up, you urinate. And typically the second thing you'll do very soon is you'll defecate. So, and there's a reason for that. If you're in that proper rhythm. Your body's trying to detox. Cool. Oh, I love that. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen grower. It's so easy, it's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water and in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing and a few days after that, you can start eating them and it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them and they're really happy that you're eating them and your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part, because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have to use any mental energy that I don't need to, and they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out, you can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass, you can get culinary cilantro, or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're 
so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads at different bowls. You can impress your guests, but like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part. And it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows. And then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you wanna give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. What are the least talked about causes of GI disorders? Mm. Mm. Well, I'll kind of start there from maybe an or you want, yeah, I, I mean, you can say one that's that's really big, I would say, is just environmental toxins. Um, I have to, I have to kind of just start there. Whether I mean, and this is one of the reasons why we went. We've been a hundred percent plant based for eleven years, which is crazy to think. And one of the main reasons is we think of animals as being great bioaccumulators, right? Like most definitely, animals can bioaccumulate nutrients, and that's wonderful. Like uh, we're not going to deny that there are. There are nutrients in animals, but there are also nutrients in plants. And in the same way, animals, just like we're animals, we bioaccumulate nutrients in our liver and our organs and our tissue. We also bioaccumulate toxins. So I think it was it was quite just the perfect storm of the industrial revolution, of just industrialized farming and the chemical revolution you know, I mean, going as far back as DDT is good for me and just all, all these notions of what we thought we knew of utilizing chemistry, which don't get me wrong, is great, but not just not taking an integrative approach and understanding a big picture view of this. Um, and we're still doing this to this day. I mean, just as an example, and I categorize this as an environmental toxin because 80% of the antibiotics that we produce in the United States actually go to livestock. So we're giving livestock because of the poor conditions they live in, we're giving them 80% of the antibiotics because they they need it, because otherwise they would not survive, but we're not thinking of the ramifications of that. And now we're actually understanding, oh, we're creating superbugs, right? So antibiotic resistant microbes. 
we humans then can come into contact with these antibiotic resistant microbes and they can cause a whole host of issues, specifically GI issues. I think not enough people are talking about this. We hear about it every now and then on the news or we think of food poisoning, but I don't think the average everyday person who's purchasing that chicken breast in the store or that ground beef is truly understanding the risk that they are, are bringing into their home when it comes to these superbugs. And over time, we're seeing this. We're seeing just the number of IBS cases and Crohn's disease, right? The inflammatory bowel issues just on the rise. And I think superbugs coming from this environmental disaster is massive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have a different one. Or... I do, because yeah. I think we both see things from our own unique lens where I see that trauma i think mm. is so under under emphasized under reported not spoken about enough when it comes to irritable bowel syndrome and there is such a link between trauma and the gut. We have seen links even in the data in trauma and autoimmune conditions. We do know also a majority of people with autoimmune conditions do tend to have gut gut disease, gut issues, gut permeability or leakiness, or just an improperly functioning immune system. And irritable bowel syndrome as well has been significantly tied to trauma and early adverse life events. So, the, you know, there's a categorization of, I think there's like 27, 28 early adverse life events that people can ha have reported um, and studies have kind of collected them in these 27, 28 different types. And they can include things like um, generational trauma, physical abuse, sexual abuse, the one that is most closely associated with an increase in irritable bowel syndrome is emotional abuse. So there was a really profound study and they did see that being emotionally abused in early life led to an increase of 100 to 300% of IBS diagnosis. So somebody who was undergoing emotional abuse in their early developmental years had a 100 to 300% increased chance amongst their peers of being diagnosed with IBS. So maybe they were that one in seven who is walking around with IBS and they've also dealt with trauma. So I really do find and really do see that it's so, so, so important for more providers to be asking about trauma or to take additional educational interventions or courses in becoming trauma-informed. So that way it decreases that stigma and it increases their comfort with asking people about their past trauma, if they've dealt with them, how they still continue to affect them, and if their gut issues increase or their gut symptoms worsen when they are re-exposed to something traumatic or when they're in the presence of stress and their nervous system then starts to react similarly to it, the way that it reacted maybe in early life where they were exposed to this traumatic situation. So that's something I so emphasize in my practice. I ask every single patient about their trauma and all those questions about it because I do tend to find that without proper coping skills to retrain the nervous system to deal with stress, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, chemical stress, they tend to find themselves back in a cycle of, I got really stressed. I maybe didn't have great coping skills. 
maybe one of my coping skills was stress eating because that's something often kids kind of gravitate to. Um, maybe not, but I got really stressed. I coped with it however I used to cope with it or how I have learned to cope with it. My symptoms came back raging. So I really am passionate about talking about trauma and its connection to the gut, the brain, and that whole axis. Wow. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And it just points to how complex we are as human beings, as human creatures, but also affirms what we were saying before, which is we're all connected. And there's so many interconnections, there's so many feedback cycles that we can't just separate our mind and our emotions from the rest of our body. It's all connected. And we need to pay attention to humans as a whole and all the things that are going on in our system. So that's really important. Thank you so much for, for caring about that and for informing us on that. All right, I wanna switch gears just a little bit and talk about a hot buzzword that goes around a lot, misunderstood. Probably I need to understand this a little bit better too, but what are anti-nutrients? Should we avoid all vegetables and grains and beans because of anti-nutrients, but also how can anti-nutrients affect digestion? Beautiful question. I'll kind of, you, you can start. So, you know, it. this term anti-nutrient is basically saying that these foods might have a compound in them that might bind to other nutrients. So for example, lectins. This is one that we've all been hearing a lot about, right? Um, these are proteins that are known to bind to some carbohydrates. So some people will ascertain, oh, they're binding carbohydrates. They're bad. They're bad protein. You should avoid lectins. Lectins will give you leaky gut. And so many outlandish claims have been made about lectins without realizing, oh, okay, if we just cook foods, <laughs> you know, we are changing the protein structure and now those lectins aren't going to affect us. Or, oh, if we actually have a nice balanced gut microbiome, these lectins, these oxalates, these salicylates, these phytates, these certain foods that might have these certain proteins or compounds about them that might bind to others, our body's going to handle them. So if we are properly either pre-processing them by cooking them, which who's going to eat a raw kidney bean or, you know, certain foods are not meant to be consumed raw, like cashews, um, you know, certain things like that, we are going to process them. Um, our body knows how to process them. That is why we have things set in place. Like we have digestive enzymes in our saliva, in the brush border of our small intestine made by our pancreas. We have stomach acid made in our stomach. And we have this army of microbes who's equipped and ready to break down, unfold proteins and carbohydrates and fats and deal with them the way that they will. I think these tend to become an issue for people when, again, they're already suffering with gut issues. And then they try to say, oh, let me dump a bunch of whatever it is, oxalate, or let me eat raw kidney beans, or let me eat this food that is going to be harder to digest when I don't have the capacity to digest it. So I think that's really where I'm seeing that people run into issues. 
Yeah, and then and then just to add to that, the layers of confusion, right? Like where a lot of the animals, it's animal studies where they're the animals are eating raw kidney beans or they're eating other forms of raw beans which humans don't eat, mm-hmm. and then uh, they're eating ridiculous amounts, and then the animal studies are concluding, oh well, they're anti nutrients. The animals. Uh, these these essentially raw um, food nutrients, let's say, are binding to other nutrients. And the animal study shows that. But no other model, like any human studies or epidemiological studies, um, blue zones are one. I mean, I, I mean, it, there's the there's massive, massive epidemiological studies, which shows, again, populations eating legumes and eating nuts and seeds and eating whole grains, they're actually getting health benefits. Why, why is that? What is that disconnect? I mean, it just goes back to understanding study designs and mechanisms of action, right? And so um, I think, yeah, so people that were seeing a lot more dysbiosis, plus some people who just aren't understanding the studies, they're kind of combining those. And then there may be some are making a profit on it. Some are just kind of misguided. And I think some have great intentions, but again, they just don't understand what, what exactly is going on. Or maybe they just don't understand that data. So like yeah. James was saying, even if you're looking at population data and saying, okay, let's observe blue zones around the world of these blue zones are identified as places in the world where people live above a hundred years old. They have a, a larger percentage, a larger concentration of centenarians, people who live above a hundred. These blue zones are eating a lot of phytates and lectins and oxalates and all these anti-nutrients. And not only are they living longer despite eating them, um, there have even been studies, like there was a really great randomized clinical control trial that had crossover where they were actually feeding whole grains to one group and then the other group was not fed whole grains. And the group that was eating grains dropped an inflammatory marker, C-reactive protein, by 21%. And then when they stopped eating the whole grains because they did a crossover and they switched, their C-reactive protein, that inflammatory marker, went back up by 12%. So there is really robust scientific data to say not only are these whole grains, these, you know, anti-nutrients, um, not harmful. Again, if you cook them or you have the digestive capability for them, they're health adding. They are beneficial to your health. So we don't prescribe to that, but we also don't discount when someone comes in and says, hey, every time I eat grains, I get really bloated. We try to help them identify, what can we do with the grains? Maybe how can we help you break down the proteins before you're ingesting them? So that's where we'll tell people, okay, let's try breaking down the fiber and the protein. Maybe we're having them, instead of eating um, fresh rice, maybe we're saying, okay, Try cooking it and then freezing it because those were two ways that you broke down the protein and the fiber by freezing and by cooking. You can also blend things. You can also pressure cook things if you want a deeper level of breaking down fiber and protein. You can combine these modalities. So if somebody is reacting to X food, whether it's kale or grains or beans, we'll say rather than throwing out the baby with the bathwater, why don't we just try processing it a little bit differently? Give your gut a break and give it a little bit of help and then see if you still feel that same way. Yeah. Wow. That's super cool. Yeah. Y'all are very smart. I didn't think about how freezing can actually break down the protein, but it makes total sense. It makes me think as a pediatrician, when sometimes we have to put babies on hydrolyzed formula because they're not tolerating cow's milk Mm -hmm. protein, which, you know, Mm -hmm. 
a whole nother podcast episode. But anyway, <laughs> but you're basically doing the same thing. You're breaking down yeah, the protein to help it. them tolerate it better. So that's basically what you can do with the food too, is different ways to process it to help your body uh, tolerate that protein better. So Okay, yeah. cool. And that's why when you freeze fiber and then thaw it out, it looks sad. It looks soft and it got broken apart. That cellulose fiber got broken apart by the ice. So, so many ways that you can go about trying to eat more of a variety of food because we know that that's where it's at. Wider variety, 30 plus plants per week. Love it. All right. Y'all are just a wealth of knowledge. So much good information. I want to know from each of you, what do you wish more people knew? I think I wish that more people knew you can heal with each meal and you can do that slowly, steadily, and you also need to feel with each meal to get there. So I really hope that people are acknowledging the power of nutrition and lifestyle intervention to get better one meal, one day at a time. Um, I wish more people knew whether you're speaking to a new mom or a new dad or a 21-year-old in college or an environmentalist, activist, anybody, I think starting with your inner ecosystem, right? Starting with yourself because so many problems in this world can seem just so huge. But if we start with like the mirror, right? Our reflection, ourselves on the inside, that is so, so impactful. And we've seen this with ourselves. We've seen this with others and patients and in our community and our families. And it's like when you just kind of refocus on yourself, you have a massive ripple effect. You become a beacon of sorts of just positivity and energy and radiate health. And that has a bigger impact than trying to start somewhere outside of your body. Because at the end of the day, if you're not well, then you're not going to do things well, right? Like if you're feeling sick, you're going to feel sick in anything you do outside of you. So it's really just kind of refocusing back in. And like Dahlia's mentioning, it's, it's really three categories, chemical, physical, emotional. One of those three categories, start there and start with yourself and just take the time and take those steps. Like Dahlia's saying, low and slow, whether that's with food or mental health or spiritual, emotional health, and just start with yourself. That That is very powerful. Uh, that's so beautiful. And that's so empowering. Thank you so much for that. Okay. Do y'all have a morning routine? If so, can you share it with us? Yeah, it's, it's pretty similar. So mm -hmm. we can... Yeah, we, we try to wake up fairly early. We try to rise with the sun. I mean, but like, but it's like around 6 a.m. 6.30. I would say or 6.30. <laughs> um, uh, you know, For me. we're getting out of the winter break with our daughter. So it's like 6.30 now. <laughs> but um, and then we usually do a, a Bible study. We usually do something yeah, spiritual. spiritual we pray or we, we do a Bible study. And then we usually get our daughter ready for school. We get ready. We get ready, drop off at school, we exercise, and then we break our fast after exercise. We get that 14 hour fasting in total. We and break our fast. And then we get to work usually. And we, yeah. you know, our work days look different. Some days I might be seeing patients, some fun days I might be doing podcasts or working on other cool projects. And um, yeah. And then, you know, after 
after that, we get to go into the rest of our day. But those mornings are so important to us because yeah. I know if my morning routine is off, my day is off. So <laughs> that is such a protected time. My family knows like, hey, we're never going to join you guys for family breakfast. If you guys want to go out, go ahead. We are going to the gym. Like you are not going to talk me out of my Saturday morning hot yoga class because that is something spiritual for me. Yeah. So it's so protected because we recognize it's not only good for your gut, it's good for your mental health. It's good for your emotions it's great to have just that routine so you're more likely and more motivated yeah. to stay in it and then little details like we mouth tape so in the morning we're taking off our mouth tape we're <laughs> hydrating you know we use hydroxyapatite toothpaste and it's it's amazing it's been a game changer and just little things like that but that's that's the general kind of morning routine yeah i love it what a beautiful routine thank you so much for sharing that i'm a fasted exerciser too i feel like i feel better when i exercise in a fasted state especially if i'm running or doing like more intense cardio so yeah mm -hmm. i like to get it in first thing in the morning so that's great yes part of my morning routine as a gut health dietitian i can't forget to say this is okay. I, I have bowel movement. I really oh, yeah. do recommend having a bowel routine because <laughs> sure. that can be so important to try to really not force it, but just train yeah. your bowels to say, okay, this is our time and I'm going to make time for you. So I think that that's such an important part of my routine. And if that's off too, I'm like, oh my gosh, who am I today? <laughs> Yeah, I love it. <laughs> you're you're the queen on the throne. First thing on the mor first thing in the morning, huh? Beautiful. My squatty potty and I. <laughs> yeah. Okay, y'all. Um, why don't you let us know where listeners can connect with you and what services and products you offer? It's like I opened up. Y'all have been just doing great, blossoming in your business, and you are so helpful, so resourceful. So I'm hoping some of my listeners will reach out to you if they're struggling with any of these issues. So tell us where we can find you. Yeah, so I'd be marriedtohealth.com and everywhere across social media at Married to Health. And we have, we're really proud of our team of dietitians. So we're just straight up dietitians, all dietitians in our practice. Dahlia, you know, her specialty with SIBO and IBS and all things gut. We have other dietitians that are amazing. We actually, speaking of emotional health and, and just emotional release, one of our dietitians has married nutrition with, she's certified in neo-emotional release. So really kind of marrying the, that that feeling and that emotion with nutrition mm -hmm. is really great. And then, and then we have other dietitians who specialize in metabolic disease, cancer, plant-based nutrition, eating disorder, pediatrics. So we're excited. So we love yeah. supporting our dietitians. And then we also have our passion projects that we have. So we have our Good Gut A to Z ebook for those who are interested. They can find that on our website. We have Gut Nurture, our cool gut supporting blend with Complement, and we also are going to be relaunching our past SIBO IBS program, Back by Popular Demand. It is a resource of everything we talked about here today and more, more. <laughs> on how you can continue to heal with each meal and really support your SIBO IBS through plant-based nutrition. So you can stay plant-based and learn which plant-based foods you're gonna tolerate, digest and eat most and really understand the who, what, when, where, why. And we have an amazing gastroenterologist who will be involved, pelvic floor therapist, our neo-emotional release dietitian, 
primary care provider. So we're really yeah. excited. So those who are interested can sign up on our wait list or sign up for the course. And this is this is the only 100% plant-based CBO IBS program and protocol. Everyone Complete else out there is like, recipes. eat more chicken, eat more steak, which, hey, if you want to do that, you totally can. But we feel like this goes in way more depth. This is really, really helpful of getting to the root causes. And that's causes. not going to help your gut microbiome. <laughs> exactly. Like you want something that's actually going to help long term. Like we've, we feel like we've really yeah. hit that. Yeah. And well, and cool there's people out there that, and... yeah, and there's people out there that no matter what, they're vegan, they're going to stay plant-based. So they're looking for resources and for other providers who understand that and are going to help them reach that goal within that, you know, within those parameters. So um, I'm really glad that y'all offer that. That sounds super comprehensive. And it sounds like it could be very helpful for those people that need a little bit more support and need more, um, you know, hands on to get better. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. and even for the people who just want to eat more plants, maybe they're not vegan, but they're predominantly plant-based or want to eat more plants. So yeah, we're very excited about it. Yep. Yay, plants all around. <laughs> okay, last question, y'all. Leave us with your number one tip to improve and maintain gut health on a plant-based diet. Do you want me to go first? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, and I'm, I'm kind of, I think we're going to post a blog on this. I've been really excited about it, but I call it the farmer's market method. Like, um, just do the farmer's market method. And so that is eating local eating seasonal like if you if you're in tune with your local farmers you're in tune with a lot of what what is great for gut health especially on a plant-based diet um the local foods are going to taste better their dna is more attuned to the local environments they have local microbes on them uh you're waking up early most likely to get to the farmer's market you're out breathing fresh air in the farmer's market maybe getting some sun and some vitamin d so it kind of hits all these check marks And I would say, yeah, like really you get to support local farmers and local economies. The list can go on and on. So that is just going to hone you in and take you on that path to gut health. I love it. Yeah. And I think for me, it's um, trying to cook more of your meals and just eat with presence and mindfulness because I think people don't realize a huge part of our digestion happens in what's called the cephalic phase. And that's really before you've even eaten food. It's the smell of food, the touch, the t- sense of food, the sa- the sound of food, the smell, you know, all of it, engaging all those senses when you're preparing the food, seeing the food. Um, And then, you know, really being mindful while you are in that process of either buying the food, whether it's from the farmer's market or the grocery store, of preparing the food, of sitting down and eating that food. What are the thoughts going through your mind? And what is your relationship with this food? Are you anticipating pain or are you saying, oh, I'm going to be so bloated after I eat this meal or I hope that this doesn't make me constipated? Or are you saying this smells so good and I love the way that this crunchy bread sounds and I love the way that this tart lemon tastes? And are you creating that mindfulness and saying, "Mm, I'm going to heal with each meal. This meal is going to make me feel amazing. This meal is going to help my SIBO IBS. So really creating that time 
with your food and really creating that relationship and that presence with your food. Because just like any relationship, you can have different layers and different levels. Anywhere from roommate or spouse, where you're married to that food, you love it and it loves you back. It could be an acquaintance type of relationship where it's a weekend friend. It could be a strained family member that you only see on holidays. Or it could be toxic you where you're like, boundaries. no contact with you. I, I, I love you, but you don't love me back and you make me feel terrible. So really trying to be mindful of what's your relationship with these foods and what are your thoughts and how are you engaging yourself in this relationship with this food? Ah, I love it. That is so beautiful and so applicable and so important for all of us to remember. Well, James and Dahlia, thank you so much for coming back on Veggie Doctor Radio and dropping all this knowledge and wisdom. I know that this is going to benefit a lot of the listeners. And for those that need a little extra help and support, I hope that they reach out to you and your team for that help. So thank you so much. I'm so grateful for everything that you do, the approach that you have and how passionate you are and how caring you are for helping people get better and feel better. So thank you once again. And I hope that you both have a very plantastic day. (laughs) Thank Thank you. you. Likewise. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.